This is the Living in Fierce Alignment podcast, your go-to place for mindset transformation, self-empowerment, and personal development. I'm your host, Kayla. I'm a mindset coach for ambitious human beings who are wildly passionate about up-leveling themselves so that they can live a limitless life with ease. I'm here to show you how to create the life of your dreams and powerfully step into your full potential, and of course, live fiercely. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Living in First Alignment podcast. My name is Kayla, and today I'm interviewing a friend of mine and fellow Canadian coach named Kyra Evans. She is an author, a speaker, and a self-empathy teacher. Her first book, The Dictionary of Limiting Beliefs, Transforming Your Inner Narrative to Manifest a Wholehearted Life, launched in June of this year and has been quickly adapted by spiritual teachers, coaches, therapists, and as a personal development book tool as well. So Kyra lives in a cabin in the woods of Muskoka, Canada with her husband and daughter. So I brought her onto the channel today because we're gonna be chatting about her book and then also just wanted to bring her on because her and I connected through an interest in Reiki and I just really was happy to have her on and have a chat. So Kyra, welcome to the podcast and I'm really thrilled to have you here. So if you could just maybe tell us, tell us a couple of things that I didn't mention in your bio, and then we're just going to dive into a, a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. It's exciting to be able to connect with you like this because we've been sort of chatting back and forth for a while. And like you said, you, you played a, a role in my introduction to Reiki, which is really exciting as well. But yeah, I'm a writer, I'm an author, a speaker, and a teacher, and a coach. Um, I have a background in corporate marketing uh, as a copywriter, an advertising copywriter, which I think is really beneficial to the work that I do now in terms of writing about spirituality, because copywriting is all about taking complex subject matter and really drilling it down to its nugget, its most valuable piece. And I think that that's kind of what I bring to my writing is I can take a big spiritual concept or a psychological concept and really drill it down to actionable insight. And that's, uh, that's really what I what I do in my books and in my speaking and also the content that I produce on Instagram. I really, really love that. Can you actually share a little bit? I mean, I have some questions that we're going to go through today, but now I'm curious. Can you just share, how did you go from this corporate industry and tap into spirituality and turn that into your voice? Like, what got you into that? <laughs> it's kind of an interesting question because I feel like I'm very much in the middle of this transition. So I've always wanted to be a writer from the time I was really, really little. I read a babysitter's club book at eight years old and I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to be N.M. Martin. You know, I think anyone who is born a creative or artistic person you wind up with a lot of people who love you trying to quote unquote protect you and tell you not to go into the arts um, to be a lot of different things other than a writer until finally in my early 20s, I was like, I can't, I can't ignore it. So I need to find a way to make a stable income as a writer, very much looking at it through the lens of what is you know, quote unquote, realistic, what is stable. And so I started copywriting, which is an excellent way to make a lot of money as a writer, a stable job kind of fell into a niche of finance and tech copywriting, because I have this like big nerd brain. And <laughs> my clients would love to send me really boring stuff. And, you know, Kyra can turn it around and make it sound interesting and engaging. And so I was working 
freelance, uh, strictly freelance so that I could be at home with my daughter after she was born. And uh, sort of through a number of of different circumstances taking place. I've always been a spiritual person, but kind of wound up in an awakening phase, writing a book and uh, wanting to find a way to sort of bridge the gap. How can I connect my abilities as a copywriter, my background working corporate and, uh, and hopefully transition into what I actually want to be doing, which is strictly writing books and speaking um, and teaching. And so the question of how do you make that leap you know, I'm still sort of figuring that out, right? It's still very much in the middle phase. Um, I decided that what I would do, one of the first steps was to write a, an ebook and release that so that I have something to sort of point to. Um, I slowly started letting go of my finance clients and taking on spirituality, copywriting clients. So I still am doing copywriting, but primarily for either spiritual brands, teachers, coaches, because what I can offer is sort of a little bit of both. I, I have an understanding of corporate copywriting best practices, but I also offer obviously heart-centered copywriting and yeah, just sort of chipping away at it step-by-step. I love that so much. And I think it's really beautiful that you're transitioning from this sort of corporate world into, you know, your self-expression of being an artist and an author and a speaker, because I definitely noticed for me that I, I can still tell that I have this like bitterness and resentment towards the corporate world because I was so unhappy in it when I was working for big corporations and so on. And so for me, it's very black and white. It's like you either do it or you don't. But I love that you have this story of being able to weave what it is that you love doing into what it is you were previously doing and how you're like, it really does sound like you're elegantly leaving that world, but you're leaving it so peacefully where for me, I was like, I'm done with the corporate life. Like I'm quitting. I'm going to start my coaching business and do contract work so that I can like fuel myself while growing my business. And I've just had a very righteous experience, but it's, so it's really refreshing to hear your story because it's actually allowing me to sort of question my own perception of like, how could I be more, you know, create more of a blend of my coaching and what I'm currently doing in my nine to five and just allow that to be a more elegant transition. So I don't know if anyone's ever said that to you, but I just wanted to share and acknowledge you for that because I just found that listening to you the last couple of minutes was like really inspiring. Oh, I love that. Thank you. I yeah, think you're that, so welcome. Is, oh, that's, it's a big part of what I sort of teach about and what I write about is this sort of more gentle, open palm, curious approach to life. And I think that, for me, also a big part of that journey has been discovering human design, which I know you're super into as well. Um, and I'm a projector, I'm a splenic projector. I think that lends itself really well to, in a lot of my deconditioning, I've had to sort of understand that in order for me to thrive, I have to be more gentle with myself and I have to allow myself more space. I was very much living as a generator, as you know, most of us are taught to do for many, many years. I've always been like the straight A student, the honor roll student, the high achiever, the, you know, the goal oriented person. And I think that human design sort of gave me permission to lean into my natural tendency toward being a little more thoughtful in my approach. And, and I think that that's beneficial to everyone, regardless of what your human design is, because in this Western culture, 
you know, we're taught that faster is better. And it, and it's not always that way, because as you said, it does lead us sometimes to uh, enter into a black and white situation where maybe there are layers of gray in there that we would benefit from exploring. Yes. Yes. That was so beautifully expressed. And I was smiling when you shared that you were a, a splenic projector, just because I don't think we've talked about human design in the DMs, but I'm, I'm a sacral generator and I'm literally a magnet for projectors. My boyfriend <laughs> is, a, is a splenic projector. Yeah. And I just think it's so funny. And it was, it was interesting because I, I had a coaching program that I was doing on like money mindset and transforming your relationship to money in the spring. And I had two incredible clients join me in that program. And they're both, they were both splenic projectors. And I thought it was so interesting. The irony of me being a sacral generator, helping them decondition from showing up as a generator to showing up as a projector. And it was like, mm. it was so beautiful, you know, because I love what you said. Like we live in this, this culture of like hustle and grind and getting things done quickly. It is like praised upon. Whereas, you know, for example, the non-energy types like projectors or manifestors and reflectors, they need to slow down. Like you're meant to be the guides and a guide. If you, if you were, if you were to imagine being on a tour in Europe, and you have a guide showing a group of people around and they were to just run through, you know, the countries and not slowly guide and show those people the little bits and pieces of what's available and the beauty within those countries, the, the group would miss out, right? And that's really what these non-energy types are about. They're about guiding. And when you guide, you have to slow it down because that's what creates the experience. And so that's why I just love, I love human design so much because it really does give permission for people to slow down. And even myself as a generator, like burning out is a thing. It's not like I have this, they say generators have unlimited energy, but it's not always true. And so I just love that you brought that up. This, this whole concept of just like slowing down and breathing. And even what you said earlier about having this like open palm approach, like I just really sense this gentle energy. And I really like that about you. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, I, I think you're, it's such a, an excellent example of why human design is so wonderful, because I think once you really get into it, you do notice how your relationships, it's like, you know, puzzle pieces that connect with each other. And like the projectors need the generators and the generators benefit from the projectors and we all benefit from the manifestors. And it's like, in an ideal you know, I've, I've often thought I'm at the very early stages of building out a team and I'm very much conscious of like, okay, well, what, what human design do I need in each position? You know, who's going to work best in that way, because we need to all fit together and, and be cohesive. And I think, you know, I've often thought as well, my husband is a manifesting generator. And so that, that strategy to respond, you know, even that, even if you're a sacral generator, you still, you shouldn't be responding to everything. You know, like everybody benefits from taking a minute to assess whether or not this is right. Even as, as a splenic authority, they say it's supposed to be like an instantaneous thing. Doesn't mean necessarily act on it right away, right? Everybody can benefit from taking a breath, taking a step back and being more conscious and aware in the decisions that we're making. Yes, exactly. So speaking of that, what I want to ask you about, I actually lived in Toronto for three years. And I remember that life being very fast paced. And when I left Toronto, I actually felt like I could finally relax in my body. Like I literally think I was in fight or flight mode for three years. I was personal training. I was getting up at 445 in the morning, working till 7, mm -hmm. 730 at night. It was nuts. And we lived downtown. We were at like 
five minute walk from College Station, which is right in the heart of downtown. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you about was when the, I want you to tell me about the time that you took a leap of faith and sold all of your stuff, left Toronto and moved to a cabin in the woods only to have everything fall apart, apparently. And I'm really curious to know this because you'd think that leaving a busy city would bring more peace and harmony, but it sounds like things really had to settle down. So do you mind just sharing a bit about that story? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm born and raised in Toronto. I am like a city girl. I love Toronto as most people who are born and raised there do. Um, and it's funny because I like, I'm a, I'm a hard introvert, <laughs> like, um, but there is something about the energy of the city, um, the multiculturalism, the, you know, the arts and culture. It's just like, I love it. But my husband and my daughter are country mice and they were not thriving in the city. And so we kind of had a big talk and decided that it would be, you know, I was outnumbered. And it would be best if, if we left the city. And so I had said to my husband, I'll go anywhere provided that we can find an awesome school program for our daughter. If we find the right program, I will move there. I don't care where it is. And we wound up finding an, a private outdoor elementary school program, uh, two and a half hours north of the city in Muskoka, which is like Canada's uh, cottage country. And went and visited uh, absolutely fell in love with the program. It's, you know, the facility was on 270 acres of land. Uh, it's, it's a summer camp in the summer and a school during the school year. So basically they sell it as like, you're basically at camp all year long. Um, they were like, this is, it's a tiny little school. It's like a home school. We're like a big family inquiry based student led, you know, I was, we were like, this is it. Like, this is, this, this is perfect. This is exactly exactly the place that we were looking for. And so I was like, sold, let's do it. What do we have to do to, to get there? And at the time, private school tuition was something that was very much aspirational for us and not realistic. And so we were like, okay, well, let's, let's sell a bunch of our stuff and do whatever we can to fund uh, this move. And that's what we did. We took a massive leap of faith we moved up here. I really thought that what we were embarking on was this journey that would be kind of how you described it, like um, more quiet, more calm. I really felt like we were going to move to this small town and just be enveloped in this warm hug from a local community of, you know, small town folks. And pretty much as soon as we got boots on the ground, the wheels fell off and everything went south. <laughs> it was completely the opposite of literally everything we expected it to be. Um, so, you know, the, we had rented a place up here when we first got here, they had sold it as a four season home. Uh, it wasn't, it was a three season home. And so it, there was no heat, um, for our first winter here. We got a maximum of nine degrees Celsius in our house all winter long. So we were like wearing parkas indoors. At one point, uh, we realized very quickly that the, the locals here, uh, really quite truly hate tourists um, and hate anyone who's not from Muskoka, but particularly people from Toronto. So we did not get the warm hug that we were anticipating. I've been called a terrorist. Um, I've been told, go home. You don't belong here. What else happened I'm, to us? We I'm had so shocked to hear that just because like Muskoka, like you said, is portrayed as this, this cabin country. And it's just like, I remember when I worked downtown Toronto 
everyone, I mean, this is a generalization, but you get the idea. Literally everyone on the weekends was like in their cars by 2 p.m. on Friday, driving up to Muskoka to like get away. So I'm just so shocked to hear that Muskokans, for example, were like, get out. <laughs> we don't want you here. Doesn't sound very, yeah. very inclusive. <laughs> No, no, not at all. And, and I mean, yeah, not inclusive. And I'm like a white, you know, upper middle class, cisgendered, heterosexual woman. So imagine being like, I, I'm an incredibly privileged person. And then imagine being anything other than that. Like, I, I, yeah. I don't even know what would happen. So yeah, we were very quickly, uh, it was made clear that they did not want us here. We, um, our well ran dry. So we, when we eventually bought a house, um, our well ran dry so we were three weeks without running water so no toilet no shower no laundry uh, we had a flood in the basement that ruined all of our furniture and uh, finally our daughter um, unfortunately wound up being so torturously bullied in this school program that we had to pull her out and so the very thing the foundation of of our move here was no longer and uh, we kind of were going like what have we done I just remember looking at my husband and going like, I feel like an alien. I don't know where I am. I don't know anyone here who is like me. What do we do? What was the time frame for all of this to just unravel? We stuck it out. Like we're not quitters, Kayla, as much yeah. as we maybe should be. <laughs> we were like, we can make it work. Like we were like, we can make it happen. Um, we were like trying everything. And uh, so the, the flood, the well running dry, the first winter, the understanding of the intense hatred, that was all within the first two years. And then it was halfway through our daughter's third year in the school that we were finally like, you know, it was after literally I have 10,000 words of email emails back and forth to the school being like this has to stop advocating for her talking to the principal talking to the teachers talking, you know um and it just became clear that 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 wasn't going to they weren't going to help us out on this and and it wasn't a safe environment for our daughter and so yeah it was sort of our third year here that we ultimately pulled her out and then the then the pandemic hit right on that too so it was kind of coming <laughs> oh my gosh but it's interesting how the universe works right because this was very much sort of backing me into a corner where the external circumstances had me so deep and so miserable that I really had to turn inward and for the first time I recognized how toxic my internal environment was you know I had thought that it was just kind of normal right but once the external got to the point where I could no longer handle it I realized oh okay well this is representative of what's happening inside of me, you know, and I have to adjust that before I can adjust any of my external expectations. Because, um, you know, if you are at a very low self-worth or intensely critical uh, inner voice place in your subconscious, and you're trying to manifest anything above and beyond that, you're not going to get there until you address the root cause. So it really started me on this, this path uh, of just experimenting, it brought me to a place where I was like, I will try literally anything that purports to make me feel better. And I was going to two separate therapists, I was looking into Reiki, as you know, um, I was doing shadow work, inner child work, internal family systems, I was learning about human design, astrology, crystals, uh, past life regression, and eventually you know, settled on a method that brought me an incredible amount of healing. And I started sharing that with 
coaching clients and they were seeing big results. And that was really the birth of my book. I'm so excited to talk more about your book. And I, I just want to, before we dive into that, I just want to relate to what you were sharing around. I've been there actually it was right before the pandemic hit in February, 2020, I was working. So I'd moved across the country back to Vancouver with my boyfriend. And I, I had this dream, like I was still in the process of really getting, you know, my coaching business off the ground. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to work for this company and I'm going to do this and I'm going to move up in this company and bring coaching into their industry. And it just, it didn't happen. Everything fell apart. And I remember that February, it was like very similar to what you said, like my external circumstances were so just, I couldn't even handle it. Like I was so broke. I was so frustrated. I was so just like in the dumps, like desperately looking for another job to fuel me while I was growing my coaching business. And it, it's like almost mind blowing because I remember thinking like, this isn't, this isn't what I want. Like how, how is this even possible? You know, my external circumstances are just, are just completely reflecting everything that I don't want. And what I found really challenging, and I think this is where the inner work comes in is like my, I remember my boyfriend, like really trying to be supportive like you have to take action you have to do this you have to get out of this and I was like I I don't care what my external circumstances are and I just literally went inward and was like I'm going to manifest a remote position that pays me really well that I'm going to be able to do while I'm growing my coaching business I'm going to pay off all my credit card debt I'm going to do x y and z and I literally kept focusing on what it is that I wanted even though there was literally no evidence in my present moment of that happening, like none whatsoever. And long story short, within the span, by the end of March, literally two weeks after the lockdown happened in Canada, I got a remote position that paid me like more than double what I was making at my previous role. I paid off my credit card within five weeks. And then I actually had the energy to become more present and like nurture my business properly, not from a place of scarcity. And I was like, I just remember thinking, this is crazy. Like this, this is, you know, when we see people online saying like, you have to have faith in your vision, like that, that is, and it's funny because as I say that I'm kind of getting chills because I literally just had no evidence. I didn't know how it was going to work out. And I'm hearing that and you're sharing too, is that your external circumstances don't define where you're going. And so I just, when you said that, I was like, man, like you just took me back to like over a year ago when I really felt that. And I wanted to share that because I think that this is going to lead into the conversation of you writing your book and why you chose to write about your book around limiting beliefs, because that ultimately it was the limiting beliefs that had me there, but then it was me doing the work, like you said, that got me out of it. So I would love if next you can share about your book and why you chose to write this book. Cause I think that this is just, I love our conversation right now. This is such a fun journey. So <laughs> yes. Yeah, me too. Well, and uh, like awesome job, kudos to you for uh, manifesting that amazing position. And so quickly on such a, a quick timeline. And I think, you know, it's interesting. You said your, your boyfriend was saying like, you got to take action. And that's, that's so, and of course, like he, he, obviously was saying that because he didn't want you to suffer you know it was like coming from an amazing place clearly um and that's so much of the advice that we get is like take action take action and the sort of beginning of my journey when things were really falling apart I was, <laughs> was pretty certain that like okay if I can just make my external world better I won't hate myself so much and so I was taking a course that was on manifestation. It was like a super fascinating course, loved it. 
it was based uh, primarily in visualization. I was finding it fascinating. I was doing the exercises I would go into, and I had been by this time, like, you know, practicing manifestation, visualization, et cetera, for, you know, 10 years, um, but wanting to deepen my practice. And what I realized in doing these exercises was I would focus on my goal. I would visualize it. I would get to a certain point in my visualization and this little voice would creep in. Yeah, but you're not good enough. Yeah, but that doesn't happen to you. Yeah, I don't get chosen. And I was like, damn it. Like, who are you? <laughs> Why do you keep messing this up for me? Okay. I believe all of this. I a hundred percent think this content is amazing. But every time I go into my visualization, I hear this little voice telling me that I'm not worthy of what I'm manifesting. And the teachers would say, it's okay. That happens all the time. That's natural and normal. Um, you don't need to feel worthy of your manifestation. You just need to keep visualizing. You're not the exception to this rule. Just keep going. And I think what I realized in that moment was that may be true for some people, but it wasn't true for me. And to a certain extent, I was the exception to the rule because I think that the action-based, you know, visualizing and, and et cetera, is an incredibly powerful tool, provided that you don't have something limiting you in your subconscious running on loop that's going against the very fiber of what you're inputting in your visualization and that's what was happening to me I was visualizing and using affirmations which are very much in the conscious mind but subconsciously I had this narrative going about who I was and what I was capable of I didn't even realize it really at the time and it was competing with my magnetism that I was trying to draw in and so very much around that same time that I was embarking on this journey of just trying anything, I learned about the idea of limiting beliefs, which are, I'm, I'm sure your audience already knows, but just the false beliefs that you have about what you're capable of, and they limit the results that you'll be able to manifest in your life. And so, yeah, that's once I sort of understood that I had these limiting beliefs, it was almost like the sensation became like, it was very palpable for me. I felt like I could feel energetically that there was something blocking me. And I didn't know how to access what was blocking me and heal it. And so that's when all of the work came into sort of developing this, this method uh, that ultimately I put into the book. I love this so much. And it's crazy because what you just shared about energetically feeling that blockage, I can totally resonate with that. And I think that comes, it is self-awareness, right? But I, I think it's so true that when we start to do this inner work, we start to discover energetically how we feel about the things that we think about and that we visualize. And one thing that I really love too, when you talked about affirmations and visualization is I'm, I'm not crazy into affirmations for myself. Like they really do work for some people, but it's not something that works the best for me I find that I, I can't use affirmations to convince myself that's that's they don't work like that for me I would use an affirmation to reaffirm what it is that I already believe and I think that that's that's really powerful and for me what I find what brings me into an affirmative state is I do automatic writing where I will script what it is that I want because then I feel like instead of just declaring it being done, I'm like creating the process to get there and then I can use affirmations and visualize a lot easier. So that's just my, my own experience that I wanted to share, but I would love for you if, you know, you can elaborate a bit more on 
you know, affirmations and visualizations and even just the method that you're talking about with self-limiting beliefs, because I think that, you know, that's obviously going to be really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think, as I said, I, I totally believe in visualizing and affirming, but it's exactly what you just said. It, it only works if you already believe that you're capable of it. And so much of the traditional sort of quote unquote, spiritual bypass manifestation dogma is just like, you know, you believe you got to believe it, you got to believe it, but nobody tells you how to cultivate the belief in yourself, right? So if you're already there, if you're already someone who believes it, then, you know, do not pass go, do not collect $200. You know what I mean? Like, keep going. Like, you, it's okay. You can use your visualizations and you will probably have no trouble manifesting. But if you are someone who is visualizing and affirming and doing all of this work and trying to believe and wondering, like, why isn't it happening? This is probably why it's not happening. And this is what I discovered was that, you know, it's to me, I realized through this process that I had an intensely critical inner voice and very much an experience of sort of a low level chronic self-loathing. And if you had met me, you never would have known that this was the case because I'm a very upbeat, positive um, person. I'm a very spiritual person. I'm a very empathic person. Had, as I said, I've always been a high achiever, but I had assumed that, well, this is just being a human. This is just, I'm just, I'm an overthinker. I'm an empathic person. I take on other people's energy. And so this is just, I'm sensitive. You know, this is just how I live my life is being chronically critical of myself through the digging that I did, I sort of developed this concept of people talk a lot about self-compassion. I prefer to use the term, the term self-empathy. And as a writer, you know, the language around something is important to me in developing the concept. Often we can find it very easy to cultivate compassion for other people, right? We can look at their failures and mistakes and we can be like, ah, oh, but they're a really, you know, they're a good person. They were trying their best. You know, if our best friend made a mistake, we would be like, it's okay. You're amazing. Like you just made a little mistake. Keep going but we rarely lend ourselves that same compassion. And for me, what I realized was the difficulty that we have is that we're too close to ourselves. There's no distance. We, we find it, it's impossible to be objective about our own failures and mistakes in the same way that we can for our loved ones. If we can begin to create some distance and perspective and through a deep meditative state, begin to communicate with our past self, whether that's our inner child or that's us, you know, two weeks ago when we said some dumb shit in a meeting. Uh, if we can view ourselves as some as an other, as a loved one, we can begin to extend compassion and understanding to ourselves in in a new way. And so that was really the um, the through road that brought me uh, to the method that ultimately created the healing. That was what allowed me um, the, the safe, to create a safe space to engage with my inner critic. Because what I had found previous to that was I was so close to it, I would go in, try to adjust my criticism of myself, and it would be like a knockdown, you know, fist fight brawl with myself. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a safe space inside my head. 
um, once I was able to cultivate that distance, I was able to engage in a conversation that could even, you know, bring the possibility of healing. I love this so much because I was wondering about this, you know, really what the difference was between self-empathy and compassion and like self-compassion. And it's so true because it is really easy to be compassionate towards others. And it's because it's not personal. You're right. That, that point that you made about it being objective, I think that that's very distinct and it makes sense. Right. And so I love what you said about there's just, isn't that distance, you know, from yourself to, to not get, you know, sucked into the inner critic and the dialogues and the evidence and all the things that we've just literally on repeat been saying to ourselves over and over and over again for years and years and years. So I think it's really great that you pointed that out because it'll give people, you know, a perspective shift. And I know that, you know, there's definitely been times where I've been coaching someone and say they're being really hard on themselves and they're like, oh, I should blah, blah, blah. And they should all over themselves. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, what would you say to your friend if they were going through this right now? And the dialogue completely shifts. And they're like, well, I wouldn't be so much of an ass to them as I am to myself. And I'm like, yeah, what's the difference then? Like sometimes we, we, if we were to treat ourselves as a friend instead of ourselves, then we would just be kinder. But I just find it so interesting that we don't automatically do that, right? Like we try to like punish ourselves into the best version of ourselves, but then it just creates more pain. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think we often, we do punish ourselves. I think that that's a really good point. I think that's something that we do a lot. And I think it's something that in our culture and in our childhoods, we were taught that discipline equals punishment and punishment equals, you know, results and being right and being good. And so I think that, you know, to develop that sense of empathy towards yourself, it is critical to examine the root of where that criticism came from. And um, the, the truth of the matter is your inner critic will always be a reflection of the voice of one of your caregivers growing up. And even for people who say, I had an amazing childhood, my parents were awesome, I had all the, you know, anything that I wanted, or there's always work to be done there. Because the awesome part about living on planet Earth is that we evolve by leaps and bounds with each generation. And so what was good parenting, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago is no longer good parenting today. <laughs> you know, I find often people are resistant, you know, to looking at their childhood or where they might have picked up this inner critical voice. And the two reasons are often, you know, if you you've experienced any kind of, of trauma, obviously that's very difficult to return to that, those memories in that place. And the second major resistance is that people say, well, I don't need to, because I had a fantastic upbringing. And I think that in both scenarios, we can greatly benefit from looking back on our past because these, you know, whether it's a capital T trauma or it's a lowercase T trauma, it's there. And it exists currently in your subconscious. It's just simmering away. And so you can make the choice to ignore it and allow it to fester and continue to affect you in ways that you may not be aware of. Or you can pull the rug up and, and address it and change, yes. you know. Yes, no, I, I think this is such a good point. And one thing that I wanted to say, though, speaking with somebody recently who is trauma-informed like they've done a lot of training around trauma and they were saying how trauma it's not about what happened to you it's literally 
the physical, like visceral, emotional, spiritual response that your body had to an event. And I think that that is more inclusive to, you know, each unique person, because what might've been quote traumatic to one person might've not been traumatic to another person. So it's really about that person and their, their reaction or their response to the event that happened. And so, you know, I personally growing up experienced a very interesting childhood where it's like my parents separated my mom and my stepdad, very healthy, healthy, loving relationship. My dad and my ex-stepmom, there was alcoholism, there was, you know, mental and emotional abuse. Like I lived in this polar opposite environment and growing up, I was like, oh yeah, it's, it's normal to me that my, my dad would drink and drive when I was a kid. Like some people would be devastated to hear that. But for me, I was like, I didn't have anything else to compare to. Like that was quote normal. Right. But that, that was traumatic. Like now, when I think about it, I'm like, that was wrong. Like morally that was wrong. That should not have happened. There's a lot of things that shouldn't have happened, but we don't realize it because when we're in it, we kind of get bogged by it. So I think that it is really important, again, tapping back into that self-empathy and really looking at like, well, what has happened in your life? Like there's just things to learn and evolve from and just shed the layers back and just, you know, go deeper into ourselves. Because I do believe that we've lived more than just the life that we have on this planet. Like I'm 31. I don't feel like I'm 31. I think I've, you know, there's past lives and lives upon that, that I think that you might be doing inner work. It might not be this generation or this lifetime. It might be from like three or four lifetimes ago. And all of a sudden something makes sense. Right. So I really love this concept of self-empathy. And the next question I want to ask you is, why is self-empathy the key to saving the world? First of all, I'm sorry to hear that that was your experience. And uh, I think that you're, you're absolutely right about the things that seem normal to you as a child. You know, we consider them to be normal even as adults until we take a minute to go, oh, that actually wasn't okay. You know, and I think that we, if we weren't, you know, if we were lucky enough to escape like extreme poverty, physical abuse, like we might walk around and, and think I'm fine. Right. Yeah. But if you are a sensitive person, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners, um, and by sensitive, I don't mean like I walk around crying all the time. I mean, like high sensitivity, like you're just somebody who maybe you, things are too noisy for you often. Maybe you are sensitive to touch. Maybe you, you know, you, you take on other people's emotions the tiniest thing can be traumatic to a child like that because the world is so big and scary, right? Yeah. So it's critical that we are able to look back on that and address what was the actual experience to what did it feel like to us? Whether it felt, you know, whether it was morally right or wrong objectively doesn't really matter. The other interesting thing that I heard recently about trauma is that, which made me feel so much better as a parent because <laughs> it's scary parenting when you're like woke to all of the shit that can go wrong but the interesting thing that I heard was that the, the trauma is stored in a negative way when a child goes through something and they don't have emotional support to work through it so whether it's something big or something small doesn't necessarily you know factor in as much as were you left to deal with the emotions on your own and figure out what it meant totally by yourself because a six-year-old or an eight-year-old cannot understand the complexities of the adults in their lives. There's something called the uh, just world fallacy that I write about in the book, 
in which, you know, children just in order to survive, to make it out of childhood, have to exist on the assumption that their caregivers are good. And therefore, we internalize anything that our caregivers do that's bad. We think, well, they are inherently good without question. And so it must be something that I've done, um, certainly with, you know, circumstances of addiction or abuse. These are things that, you know, we internalize in a way that's very unhealthy for us because we just don't have the capacity at six years old to understand what's happening. We don't understand the nuances. And so to bring it back to your question about self-empathy and, and saving the world, I really think that the trouble that we're having right now is that we have billions of people in the world who maybe they don't think it is the case, but they hate themselves. And if we are walking around thinking that it's normal to be intensely critical of ourselves or to have feelings of self-loathing, we are never going to be able to extend empathy to people who are different than us. If you hate yourself, you will never be able to love someone who is different than you. If you're intensely critical of yourself, you know, so much of your energy is wound up in just protecting your self-image and avoiding the reality of the narrative that exists inside your mind. You don't have the capacity or awareness to have empathy for others. You're not going to care about the, you know, ice caps melting. I think that we very much need to take these macro problems and solve them in a micro way and get every single person on the planet in a good place inside of themselves. That's how we're going to stimulate, you know, solving the big problems like climate change, racial inequity, income inequality, et cetera. That's so beautiful what you shared. It's so true. You know, if we're being so critical of ourselves, then we're not going to be able to accept people who are different than us. Like we're not going to be able to be inclusive, like the examples you just gave, right? You know, if everyone's walking around hating themselves, then that's just, we, we will mirror that. Like how we're being with ourselves is a mirror in the world, right? So it's crazy. I was listening to you and I was like, that's so, it just really emphasized the importance of self-love as well. And yeah, just, I mean, the power of self-empathy, the way that we've talked about it in our conversation today was just so, so beautiful. And I really loved everything that you shared. Oh, good. I'm, I'm so glad. Yeah, I, th I think it's an interesting thing because it's really, we think of, you know, directing any energy towards ourselves as being selfish, but it's really the most generous thing that we can do to the world around us. If you, you know, you think, think about the most loving person that you know, you know, the reason that they are so accepting and kind is because they extend that patient, loving, kind energy from inside of themselves. If you think of the most hateful person, you, know, you can sense that energy in someone, you know, you know, they're not a happy person. No, it's so true. And that again, it's like energy is everything. It, it really is. You know, it's just, it's such a powerful tool when you learn how to tap into that and use it to cultivate a relationship within ourselves and with others and just how we show up in the world. I think that's so beautiful. Before we wrap up our conversation, I just want to chat a little bit about, can you share with us how to use your book, The Dictionary of Limiting Beliefs, and then also where the listeners can find this? 
I've written the book. It's, uh, I called it the dictionary because it is really a reference manual. So there's a, the prologue is sort of my story of how I developed this method. The first two chapters go into a brief explanation of the various healing modalities. So um, it really borrows from inner child work, shadow work, lots of journaling exercises, meditation, uh, mindfulness. I'm a certified mindfulness instructor. So it's very much informed by that school of thought. Um, and I was very focused on making sure that I wrote the book in a manner that made it accessible to everyone. So both from a price point perspective um, and also uh, each of the exercises that I, that I give, I'm very clear to say, I want to empower you as the reader to heal yourself. So this is very much an intuitive process for you. Use my words as the jumping off point. And from there, you know, it's like trying on a new, you know, piece of clothing, make adjustments. Do you need to undo the zipper? Do you need to roll up the sleeves? Like you're free to make adjustments to these exercises in whichever way is going to work for you. And I encourage you to play with them. And once I introduce the methods, then it's divided up, uh, the limiting beliefs are divided up by theme and alphabetized. So there's a chapter on body image. There's a chapter on creativity. There's a chapter on um, people pleasing, money, relationship, uncertainty. And within each chapter are individual limiting beliefs. And I gathered those up from readers all over the world. And there were a lot of overlaps. It was interesting when I asked people, what are your limiting beliefs? Just about everybody came back with imposter syndrome, which was interesting. That's very, very common. More than 70% of people report having imposter syndrome. And uh, yeah, within it, so you would ideally use the book, you would read the prologue, the first couple chapters, so you have an understanding of what are the methodologies that I'm using. And then uh, you can feel free to just skim through. And when you find a limiting belief that applies to you or that feels, oh, kind of, yeah, I can kind of relate to that, dive into that one. And I recommend taking them one at a time and uh, really devoting the time to practice this, you know, coming back to it a few times before uh, moving on to the next limiting belief. And rather than just sort of giving a Band-Aid approach, like just say this opposite affirmation. If you, if you think, you know, I'm never chosen, just say I've always chosen. <laughs> Instead, I teach you and guide you how to go into your subconscious, identify where you picked up the belief heal that root first, release the emotion attached to it, and then move on to reprogramming it. I love that. I'm really excited to dive into your book. And I really, I really loved our conversation today as well. And I, yeah, it was just the, the lens that you really come from. I can tell that you embody this work with integrity because you're, you're walking the walk and, and you're talking the talk. And I love how deep you're going into this and you know what's so interesting this is such this is such a projector tendency like you literally <laughs> created I'm serious but it's so good because I'm always I'm always going to see things from a human design lens like I literally can't help but now that I've gone down this rabbit hole but literally like projectors <laughs> are known for sharing their wisdom like really mastering and knowing systems and just having this like bird's eye view of being able to help people and give them, you know, like methods or strategies that work for them. And that's literally what you did with this book, right? And so it's like, it's such a beautiful thing that you've created this because then obviously in human design terms, like you can share it and invite, you know, receive that invitation to talk about it. And it's just like, you've literally created the perfect storm to, to make such a beautiful impact. So I'm like, 
really excited. I really loved our conversation today around this. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts as well. It's been really interesting for me to hear how it's been received. And there's actually, there's now two therapists and a number of coaches who are referring their clients to the book so that in between sessions, they can continue their growth and really maximize their time together in their one-on-ones. And it's just, I'm kind of a, a, a like a psychology nerd. So this is like your favorite rock star singing a song about you. Like therapists are referring their clients. <laughs> so good. Really excited. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. Oh my gosh. So do you mind just sharing with our audience? Let's say, so I always love to invite people to share like, you know, just one piece of wisdom, like a last piece of wisdom. And then after, if you want to share like where they can connect with you online and of course, where they can, you know, invest in your book. And then we'll just kind of wrap things up from there. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much to choose from, but I think really the basis of my work, the the nugget of the wisdom is that it is absolutely okay for you to be kinder to yourself. I think people think if I let up, if I stop punishing myself, if I stop pushing myself, I'm going to lose all my progress. And that's just absolutely not true. You deserve to extend kindness to yourself. You deserve rest. You deserve self-recognition. And from that place, you will watch your productivity explode. And uh, yeah, you can find me on, I'm present on Instagram. I I do lots of free content there every day. I'm at Kyra, K-Y-R-A underscore Evans underscore writer. And if you're interested in purchasing the book, it's only uh, $35 Canadian or roughly 28 US. You can go to kyraevans.com slash dictionary. Perfect. I will definitely include your website and your Instagram handle in our show notes for this. And I really just want to say the last piece of wisdom that you left, like just having that kindness and that open heart. I think that was, that was just such a beautiful reminder. And I I think that more people need to share that way instead of like push harder, just be resilient. Like that's such an old way of being when ultimately at the end of the day, what people really want in life is just to be love and to love and just have that harmonious, safe space to just be as they are. Right. And mm-hmm. so I think that was like such a beautiful reminder that you shared. So I just wanted to thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for coming on and like graciously sharing. And I love your story and just what you're creating and the way you're putting yourself out there. I think it's amazing. Really, really thankful that we finally got to connect and definitely going to be sharing everything that we talked about today. Amazing. Thank you so, so much for having me, Kayla. This was just a delight. Oh, so good. Oh my gosh. So I just want to let the listeners know if you can please subscribe to the channel, like, comment, leave a review. If you share this episode on Instagram or social media, definitely tag both of us. And of course, I'm going to have the links for the goodies in the show notes. You can check those out as well. So thank you all so much for listening and we'll chat with you in the next episode.